Homestyle Green episode 139. If this is the future of green home design, I think that future is looking pretty bright. G'day and welcome back to another episode of Homestyle Green. I'm the host of the show, Matthew Cutler-Welsh, and this week I think we are having a little bit of a glimpse into the future of green home design because I'm talking to a young architectural designer based in Mount Monganui, beautiful Mount Monganui, in uh, Bay of Plenty, uh, just near Tauranga. And I really enjoyed talking to Adam. It was a Saturday when we had this interview, which I really appreciate him taking time because he's got a young family. And uh, he's a busy man getting this uh, growing uh, business in the Bay of Plenty. And just really inspiring talking about why he does what he does and... uh, and the the type of projects that he's working on and, and getting to work on. He's quite selective about his clients, which I found quite interesting. Before we get into that, just a quick thank you to our wonderful sponsors, ProClimber. And if you are listening to the show, then you're probably interested in creating a house that goes a little bit beyond the building code. And for that, you're going to need good insulation and good air tightness. And that is where ProClimber can help you out. With all their products, uh, wraps and tapes, they are the best people to talk to for getting a good level of air tightness in your house, which is what you want. And then, of course, you will also need to get some good ventilation in there. And no one better to talk to about ventilation in New Zealand and also Australia as well, um, Fantech. Um, check them out. I've got some links on the show notes, but you can also just look up Fantech. They do a wonderful job, and it's tricky business getting ventilation right. There's a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of misinformation about what good ventilation is and what it isn't. And these guys know their stuff. Most of them are engineers, uh, not just um, salespeople. So check them out, fantech.co.nz, or check out the links on the show notes. Now let's get into this week's interview with an inspiring architectural designer. I started out by asking Adam Taylor why he does what he does. I kind of talked about being a designer and architect from a real, real young age, and it's almost like I've ended up here by default. I've sort of gone through life, right through teenage years and high school, just kind of assuming that's what I've um, ended up doing. And, and, And I've kind of I guess maybe subconsciously always known I wanted to do that, which is great because I do love doing what I do. Yeah. And um, I guess in terms of that sustainable bent, um, from my perspective, I think everyone, I mean, everyone that I um, circulate with, they all have a, um, I guess, the sustainable, such a, an all-encompassing holistic word. Mm. They've all got, a, 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 I guess, a natural bent to try and do a little bit better. And from my perspective, um, I do as well, and I'm just exercising in that in my um, in my chosen profession. Um, yep. I don't think what we do is uh, a left field. I don't perceive us as a specialist firm. I perceive us as just doing um, what should be uh, what I think should be standard practice. Uh, we're not looking to increase project budgets or anything silly like that. We're just trying to do everything just a little bit better and. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, in terms of starting our own firm, that was that was a big driver, really. Um, a couple of the practices that I weren't worked for, um, they really were just big businesses, you know. They had no real interest in um, 
I guess, upskilling staff to provide better services. And I was kind of looking at what was happening around me. This is, we're talking sort of um, pre-recession and mm-hmm. looking at some of the work that was going on and particularly around people that were building, um, you know, adjoined townhousing and investment model stuff. And I kind of was just really disengaged with the industry at that point. So I took a break from it. And just towards the end of the recession, I went out on business on my own and it was just really refreshing to be in charge and dealing with clients that had a similar um, natural bent and um, I guess contributing, collaborating and, and doing doing projects and doing the things that we'd always wanted to do. So, what was it about that mainstream in particular that disillusioned you? What's that? Sorry, Matthew, I just what, missed that. What was it about that mainstream work that you were most disillusioned about? Uh, as you can imagine, everyone's dollar-driven. Um, in New Zealand, I mean, we won't get into politics, but you know, while there's no capital gains, housing is a really, I guess, smart investment model for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And at the end of, the, end of the day, that just comes down to numbers. Mm. They're looking to build a product that they can build cheap. Um and I think that's still rife. I guess the, the neat thing about what we're doing now is we're not dealing with that side of the market. We're getting people that are coming to us, um, and we always call them forever homes. They're looking nice. at something that, you know, young families are like, hey, look, we want to be here five, ten years, or we've got some clients on the books now, and they said this is our home to die in. I mean, and that's not a not nice phrase, but they're saying we're going we're gonna to spend 30 years in here, and we only get one crack at this. Yeah. So we're going to spend the time to do it right. So it's their last home instead of their first home. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. Um, but, but I mean, even I think that the whole it is unique to every individual. But one thing that we I do notice is it's very demographic specific. Um, so I'm 32 and I'm finding a lot of clients in my age, or I'll say anyone up to sort of 40, 45, they tend to have a bit more of an understanding. Yep. Um, the older clients tend to have the opinion that I'd rather just throw a bit more money into my heat pump and warm the house. I'm not too stressed about all that other stuff. Interesting. Um, yeah, in the older demographic, they look at it from a um, from a payback period, return on investment type model, mm. whereas I think the younger demographic we deal with, it's a feel-good factor and it's almost like a moral obligation. Um, so that's more of an environmental standpoint. Um, and again, it's that natural bent towards can I do things a little bit better? So you mentioned there that you're finding people coming to you because of what you are offering and putting out there in the marketplace, or do you try and encourage people? Do you sort of would you class your clients as mainstream and you encourage them towards more energy efficient green design? Yeah, that's probably it's probably split fifty fifty down the middle. The longer we're in business and the more of our um, projects that are getting out there and, and and built and people are aware of them, we're finding that we're attracting. Um, clients that are, I guess, already, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They've already been, um, you know, they've already got that bent and they're, they're looking to take that journey with us. What, what is the word? Because you, you put on your website an interesting uh, paragraph there, uh, starting sustainable, energy efficient, green, performance housing. There are a ton of words and phrases. Do you, yeah. I get the sense that you don't really care too much about that terminology. You just do what you think's right. But is that an important part of getting what you do out there? Does there have to be one word that sums it up? Um, oh, yeah. I, I guess the reason I put it all in there is early on when I started the business, um, people have some real, I guess, negative 
connotations around that word green. Yeah. Um, I thought you was gonna, I thought you were going to say sustainable then, because and, and sustainable. <laughs> yeah. They have some real. They they see cost, and they see something that is not necessary. Um, and that's when I talk about that demographic. I mean, I've got you know I've got family that'll talk about, um, you know they'll just um, talk about global warming and sustainability. And they'll just wash it all into one big thing, and they'll say you know you know blooming greenies. Yeah. Um, so I've just learned. I guess I've tried to train myself a language that the way I approach people is I'm trying to get them to understand the value in it. And I don't talk about what impact it has on their wallet. I'm just talking about how we can make, I, I, the word I use most is performance housing. I really like that, that term performance housing yeah. along with forever homes. Yeah. And the example I use all the time is I tell people, I said, you know, when you go and buy a car, let's say you're buying a car, it's, it's $25,000. The general consumer, they ask a lot of questions. They take it for a test drive. They're comparing fuel efficiencies with other cars. They want to know about the ANCAP safe train. They want all this information to be able to compare and make sure that they're getting the, a good value for money purchase. Yep. When they're buying a house or having a house designed, they're kind of like, oh, what colour is my jib board going to be painted? Yeah. What colour is my roof? And I'm like, well, this is a... A, the biggest investment of your life yeah. it needs yeah. to have a huge amount of effort put into it. So what I do is I, I try and basically, instead of being a salesman, I'm saying here's options A through Z, and this is what each one does, and this is what you get out of it. And I just, the key thing is once you educate them and they see there's more opportunity to do things differently than you know walking through a generic show home in a subdivision, um, it's actually pretty easy to get them over the line on a few things. They see the value in it. Um, and if we talk about Homestar, which is our really in New Zealand, it's it's our best tool to talk about because I think everyone wants a rating to be able to compare things. Mm -hmm. I, I'm kind of of the attitude that it's not about getting a small percentage of the population to build Homestar rated 9 and 10 homes. Yep. It's about getting the the bulk of the population aiming for like say a six, yeah, which is affordable and it should be a standard. Um, so that's that's our, when we get a client come in the office who knows nothing about it, it's just about educating them and then just discussing the merits of all the options and relating that back to a budget and then talking about what the expectation is going to be on housing stock in years to come. Yep. And making sure that they're future proofed and they've, I guess, protected their investment. Yeah. You wouldn't want to buy, build a house that's technologically outdated in like 12 months. So you need to be, okay, well, what's the expectation going to be in five years when someone buys a house? You know, and you're seeing that happen now in rentals with the whole insulation thing. People were rejecting the notion of a, prop, a home that's not insulated. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a very positive uh, direction. And I guess that's the the entry level kind of approach to it's not I wouldn't even call that performance housing. It's just kind of getting off uh, bare minimum. Mm. What what are those big hits? Where what are the the low hanging fruit? If someone is looking at a new home, what are the three main things that they would do to get what you would call a performance house? Well, we we kind of the way we work is I know it's everyone's different and you can bring in some some big ticket items so i'm talking about budgetary expenses um you can bring in some big ticket items and ignore all the boring stuff 
and get a, a significant impact. Um, you know, someone gave me the example the other day that they said, um, you know, if I put a huge PV system on my roof, they said, if I put a huge, you know, 15 kilowatt system on my roof yep. and I'm on a full battery bank system and then I run electric underfloor heating, if I'm generating my own power, they said to me, why would I bother with all the double glazing? Why would I bother with all yep. this? They said, I can just... I've made my own Use as much as I like. Why can't I just generate it? Yeah. And I actually had no answer for him because I was kind of like, well, in essence, you're kind of right because you're not really having a, a huge impact on terms of grid load. It's all renewable. Um, but I guess there's issues around that in terms of long, you know, maintenance on systems and ongoing life cycle costs and uh, I guess the upfront um, impact on the environment for the manufacture of those items. So we always take a, a ground-up approach and biggest return on investment is the thing we do first. So if we talk about um, basic principles of, you know, a good thermal envelope, obviously a second layer of insulation in your roof mm -hmm. running perpendicular is very, very cheap. It has, in terms of percentages on a build cost, we're talking, you know, micro level, and that has a huge impact. The majority of heat loss in a thermal envelope is, you know, upward through a roof. Yep. So the way that we're dealing with that. So then we start to build people into the project. But the key things that we like to deal with are basically um, we'll just wrap it up into a healthy indoor environment. So we're talking about the management of moisture in a building. We're talking about the thermal envelope and we're talking about indoor air quality. Nice. And um, I think the thing that's really exciting us at the moment, and it's because we're in a building boom, is that we're seeing um like particularly european technology um like with heat recovery systems we're seeing them enter the market at a quite affordable price yep whereas you know five years ago it just wouldn't have happened but because yeah. the, the the volumes out there now um i mean there's some quite good units for like i say pretty good cost um you're talking so heat, people, heat recovery yeah yeah we're managing to and and i know um there's some quite interesting through wall through wall ones now, which is suitable for renovations. Um, if we've got flat ceilings and stuff like that, um, so the exciting thing for us is we can um, we could throw all this in front of people, and they feel like it's a it's an affordable solution. You know, we can uh, if we've got good passive heating and put a heat recovery in there, um, we can trade that off and say, well, we don't necessarily need to put in that gas fire anymore. That which which you'd allowed for in your budget, we can sort of throw that out the door and reinvest elsewhere. Do you model that for people to prove it before the fact? I mean, in terms of full thermal modeling? Yeah. Well, how do you, I guess how do you give someone confidence if you're going to take out their heater? Yes. Is, is everyone comfortable about that? Um, some people, most people, uh, I wouldn't say they're comfortable about it, and we will quite often design redundancies into houses. So they'll mm -hmm. have just like um, a solar hot water cylinder has a backup element in it quite often people have redundancies in their design. Yep. And I think it's project specific too, because obviously if someone's building a, a low cost house, our, I guess our fees are relevant to that. So there's only so much we can do, but certainly on high end stuff, um, we'll normally sub consult out um, to other firms if they want full thermal analysis done, but we can use calculations at H1 clauses um, to look at, um, you know, kilowatt hours and brands has ALF, which lets you use, um, bundle and thermal mass as well. But I guess there's good design principles about how thermal mass well um, works in terms of being able to insulate it and how it will radiate back into the room. And, and um, it, like I say, it's project specific as to how in-depth we'll get into it. Mm. 
Mm. And you mentioned heat recovery. Is that something that you use across the board, or is it only when you're going for a certain level of air tightness, or, or when you know, do wall houses need a heat recovery ventilation system? I would argue, like if I was to build a house tomorrow, regardless of project value, I would put one in. Why is that? Well, I think you're going to be drawing more moisture out of your bathrooms anyway. Mm-hmm. With a couple of, you know, people talk about like a cheap as man rose unit, um, and the reality is. In winter, no one opens their windows and doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get stale indoor air environments. You know what I, I mean? Do you know what, <laughs> I, I've just got off the stool from scrubbing my ceiling of my bathroom. I'm actually going to post a video on it later today. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess my point is if you take the um, the extraction units out of all your wet areas yeah, and then take your cost of your heat pump and bundle all that together, it's not you're not that far off having a um, full heat, heat recovery system there. That's a really good way of looking at it uh, from a cost perspective, but also from a, a performance perspective. And I don't think many people would have made that connection necessarily with a, a rain hood and bathroom extractor and a heat pump mm. um, and an HVAC system, a good HVAC system being, uh, yeah. sorry, not, a, not an HVAC, a, a heat recovery system being a replacement for those. What, yeah. What's the advantage of going to a, a heat recovery versus just having those, those more ad hoc uh, specialist devices. Oh, I mean, yeah, I guess the ultimate with heat recovery is you are, in terms of being energy efficient, any heat source that you are putting into the building independently, at least you're not losing that. Yeah. You know, because as that fresh air is coming back in, you are recycling that heat. So that's a, that's a good thing. Um, we're talking about um, indoor air quality in terms of airborne pathogens and dust and so forth. That's all being cycled out. Um, there's a reason that office blocks do that and because we know it has an impact on your, um, I guess, mental performance and also physical performance, having good indoor air quality. And I guess from my perspective, um, a lot of the ones that we're seeing on the market now, they can reverse cycle so that we can, um, you know, the heating unit can turn off and we can bring in fresh air in summer as well. So it's it's just an absolute no-brainer, really. Isn't that bizarre how we look after the internal air quality of the places we work, but not so much the places where we live and sleep and play and bring yep. up our kids? Yeah, yeah. And quite often, you I mean, all the time you have people, you know, they wake up in the morning, you've got a bit of a headache, you've got a bit of a dry yeah. mouth. It's just because your house is You've stale, been sucking you know? in poisons all night. Yep. Um, and... We're talking heat recovery here in the sense of quality systems with a heat exchange unit. We're not talking uh, positive pressure supply only type systems. No, I mean I know there's positive pressure that's been around for a while. Um, I think it's probably had a place in the market. It's probably dying though. But no, we're definitely talking about balanced systems. The big change. Um, I think you'll find in costs is when people talk about their efficiency ratings on the um, on the actual heat recovery system. Yeah. But we're seeing quite good prices for units that are sort of running at about. I know there's units out there at 99% and so forth, and I think it, it will probably be based around where you live. But we're seeing units at about sort of 94% efficiency, um, being quite cost effective um, for supply and install. And that's the efficiency of the heat that they're capturing and putting back into the house with the fresh air that's coming in. That's how they're marketing it, yeah. And yeah. each each unit and supply will have rules around, um, you know, the, the temperatures they'll operate in and so forth. But, of course, this is um, only really applicable to a house that has a decent level of air tightness. Is that right? Because otherwise you, the house is going to be so leaky anyway that it doesn't really matter. Do, yeah. you, do you go above and beyond 
in any particular way to ensure a level of air tightness? Um, that's a bloody good question. Hey, look, there are internal membranes obviously on the market. Everyone's aware of them. Um, I don't think they're actually that expensive, but that's something that we've never had on a job that we've done. That's right. quite a. That's one of those things that's quite a big push um, for clients. That's someone that's going to really commit to a performance house. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess as a minimum, we have a lot of details around internal doors to garage spaces and so forth. We were looking at putting brush strips and just made, trying to make the thing as airtight as possible. Um, and a lot of the houses that we're doing, just given their location and wind zones, they tend to be um, completely wrapped in a rigid air barrier, which is taped as well. Um, so we're finding that although a modern house would never meet um, any kind of air tightness in terms of like a passive house rating or so forth. They're certainly streaks ahead of where we were sort of, you know, years ago with the old villas. Um, Do you poke a lot of holes in the ceiling? Try not to, but people like downlights. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, most, I mean, most of the downlights now are all are butted and enclosed so people can cover the insulation and, um, over them as well. So they're much more airtight than the, um, the old version. Yeah. I was actually in the roof of my house old house about two years ago and granted it was summer um so this is a, a totally different um impact but i was up in the roof doing a few things and i was trying to yell out to my wife um i wanted her to pass a screwdriver up because there was a downlight there and the light bulb was out and so i went over this fixture and i you know i said jamie ch- chuck us a screwdriver and i couldn't believe it was like a chimney the heat that was just pouring out of there up yeah. into, out of the house into the roof base, like a proper, you know, passive stank, a pa- passive stack, sorry. Yeah, yeah. And I was just like, well, we, imagine what that's like in winter, just pouring up through the air. Well, it's, um, it's literally sucking the heat out, out of every yeah. one of those holes, isn't it? I was just, it was like moving, you know, like it was blowing my hair in the wind sort yeah. of thing. I couldn't believe how how much it was running through there. Yeah, yeah. I've always said that uh, those downlights are, are more of an impact on your heating energy than they are on the amount you save on the lighting energy when you switch out from incandescence to to LEDs. You're mm. saving you're saving a good chunk there, like eighty percent on your lighting, but you're, you're saving probably even more by sealing the sealing the ceiling, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now you mentioned rigid air barrier. I get quite a few questions about the benefits of a rigid air barrier versus a wrap. Do you have a preference either way, or where where would you use one instead of the other? Yeah. Well. That's a really that's quite scientific that whole woofy analysis with how um how uh, water vapor is going to move through you know a, a wall construction mm. and it's very very specific around climatic conditions and your built up wall thickness and construction. Um, I know there are sub consultants out there that can do woofy analysis. Um, it's something that we would not do in our office. We'd put it onto someone who's a bit more of an expert in their field, but it's also, I think, more relative to areas where you have um, bigger temperature swings. Mm-hmm. So South Island areas where you could have quite a warm indoor air environment and be quite cold outside. Um, in terms of the benefits of a RAB versus a, um, a, a flexible underlay, the building code will stipulate if we must have a rigid air barrier. So there's not too much we can do to avoid that. If we're in an extra high wind zone, we can't put on a, um, any kind of um, you know flexible underlay that's granted. 
what we have been looking at is um, with the rigid air barriers there again there's some new products on the market obviously you're aware of magnum board mgo um, which is a neat product and mm -hmm. that's really vapor permeable um, so we've been looking uh, well we have actually just recently specified that on a couple of jobs versus plywood and um, we think that's a neat product and i think that's going to have a, um, a place in new zealand's market Really, the ones the the ones that we um, we have been putting rabs on are mostly locally up here. We're talking about beachfront environments, high wind zones, and um, I don't see the the vapor permeability through the wall construction um, in this climate being an issue. But certainly, if I was building Christchurch or South Island, I'd been encouraging clients to uh, we'll get a wolfie analysis done on our on our wall construction, and it might be. Um, as a result of that, and I say, hey, look, Adam, based on what we see, we could have condensation forming um, behind your rad in your in your wall framing. Yeah. And that would be something I'd say, well, look, great, we've educated the client now. We'd say the option here is we need to put a um, you know a vapor control layer in here. Yep. And that's going to work um, in conjunction with our heat recovery, and then we solve that problem. Nice. Yeah. So really, the question of whether you should go for a rigid air barrier, which. Uh, is basically a piece of big piece of plywood uh, that's yes. coated and, and taped. It's instead of just a, a straight building wrap underneath your cladding, it would largely come down to exposure and the wind, uh, the windiness of the site. To a degree, I mean, we still have got people that are building, um, you know, in lesser wind zones that by code do not require a rigid air barrier. Yeah. Um, but they like the idea of building a home that's very well braced and very solid, which I right. can understand. Yep. Um, and I guess it has some advantages in terms of early enclosure for speed of construction, which we think is a big issue in New Zealand as well, um, doing things smarter. But in saying that, there's also wraps on the market now, which uh, give or take watertight. Um, as you know, ProClima have their Extanza, which is a neat product. Mm -hmm. Um, but certainly a rigid air barrier is going to contribute to air tightness um, over a, over a external wrap. Nice of you to uh, mention one of the sponsors on the show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and what about cost? Um, I, both from a rigid air barrier versus uh, wrap, but just let's talk globe more, more holistically than that. You mentioned very fractional increase in investment required for a second layer of insulation in the ceiling what are some of the other concerns uh, or myths perhaps that people have of getting a performance home that is it going, does it have to be more expensive um yeah loaded question matt <laughs> hey, um, I, no i think a performance home is what a house should cost i think the stuff that nice. we're seeing that is not performance that's cheaper than a house should be okay so they're cutting corners and yeah. and, and as far as i'm concerned that's it's built Cheap. I mean, there's you know, you drive around those subdivisions. There's a reason it's sort of referred to as cheap and nasty. At the end of the day, you get what you pay for. The product that we're trying to put out there is a fair and reasonable price for a high performance product. So, if we're comparing apples with apples, um, I think you can get a performance house. Um, let's just talk square meter rates. Um, if someone's building a house for say um, two and a half thousand dollars a square meter. I think we can turn that into a performance house 
with good passive design, window location. Um, just, I mean, we're doing one in Christchurch at the moment, um, which is a very low cost build. And we've just done a couple of little things. I mean, we've, we've used 140 mil framing. Um, we've set that framing, we've overhung our foundation, 50 mil, so we can completely insulate our foundation. Um, we've got more insulation in our walls. We've bumped it up in the in the roof. We've got a patch of polished concrete floor in our north-facing area, thinly broken joinery. Um, we're doing just a bunch of small things to the basics, and he might spend, you know, maybe 10 grand more on that house than he would have otherwise, but he's going to reap that. Yeah, in the value that's, of the house. that's super reasonable. I mean, I'm looking at uh, trying to get uh, the house that we're in right now, which is a 1950s house, fully properly insulated and then a heating system i'm not going to see any change from 20 grand on that so mm. to what? to increase the investment of a new house by ten thousand dollars to get something that is probably not even going to need much heating mm. that's a that's amazing mm. well i mean the argument i mean the argument there is that the floor's there anyway and it's north facing so why not polish it to move to thermally broken joinery um there's obviously a cost in that and that's probably the bulk of it 140 mil framing is really marginal eh? is it it's, really it's not a huge amount i mean i know people that it's better cross battening but to go to 140 mil framing is um from the costings that we've done on a small house just for your external frames it's um it's nothing really and then in terms of foundation insulation there's all sorts of options there yeah but external what are you what are you using on that uh do well, you have a one, preferred flavor we haven't it, that there is absolutely project specific, but um, a good solution with 140 mil framing is just to set your fixing back to the inside edge of that plate, treat it as if it was a 90 mil plate, and then use a, um, if you're doing like a strip foundation, you can use a ICF, like a poly block, um, yep. and then basically it's your formwork and your insulation all wrapped into one. Right, so you're doing a, uh, a custom solution that's going to be done on site to insulate the edge of the slab? Yep, yep. So instead of using concrete block for a strip footing, we're using ICF, and the outside edge of that ICF lines up with the outside edge of our 140 mil framing. So effectively, the outside outside 50 mil of your framing is non-load bearing. It's sitting over polystyrene. Yep, yep. Yeah. Nice. Um, and water, do you waterproof that? Yep. So we'll put a, um, a, a like a tanking product on it, and then we'll use a um, we just plaster it with a. Um, I don't really want to name products, but we use a um, basically a, a waterproof type plaster, similar product to how they treat on, um, say, like concrete block construction and so forth, how they treat jams and sills. We yep, use something yep. similar that's useful to go underground, and we just put in a little 6 mil saw cut, um, about 25 mil above ground level, just a little capillary break just to stop any moisture that may work up. Keep the council happy? Yep. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Hey, Loads of uh, really valuable information uh, in there, Adam, to, and it's great uh, insights into the, the future direction, which is really promising stuff, just that getting more demand from the mass. I think we're getting beyond the early adopters now by the by, from what you're saying. It's more, uh, not totally mainstream, but more people at both ends of the spectrum. It's really refreshing that knowing that there's some younger families demanding the type of thing that you're doing as well as those last home buyers. You yeah, no, definitely at the tipping point. You've mentioned Christchurch, Auckland. You're obviously working around the country. Where where can people find you and get in touch? Although having said that, before we did start, you mentioned that you've got a bit of a wait list at the moment. I might add to that. Yeah. But um, where can people find you if they want to get in touch? 
Um, well, obviously, we've got our, our website's just adamtaylor.co.nz. Um, we're Mount Monganui based. Um, we've got an office right downtown, but the best thing is just to go through the website. Um, we're continually adding to our blog there, just trying to. Um, we're trying to get you know some the science behind what we do and dumb it down into um, really easy to understand language. Um, and we're continually adding to that blog. Um, that's a really useful thing to go and have a look at. And um, obviously, it's got all our contact details on there. Uh, always interested in, in, in having conversations with people and discussing their project and seeing how we can be of service, as you'd imagine. Really nice website, by the way. Nice and clean. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you're on Facebook as well. Yeah, yeah, we're on Facebook, um, which is quite a, a good avenue to have a look at um, projects that are sort of in process, and we'll quite often float out um, conceptual stuff that's going to be coming up uh, in the future and, and look for comment on people. Facebook and, and Instagram, are they, yes. they your social media avenues of choice? Yeah, they are actually. Um, Instagram, I would say, is um, just a bit of fun for us, whereas Facebook we are looking to put on some um, some content, which I guess is educational and um, keeping people aware of what we're doing and changes we're making. And, you know, we, we, we invest probably, I would say, quite a lot of time compared to most firms in terms of upskilling, continually upskilling. Yep. And um, as, as we're learning stuff, we like to let people know about it because I think they find it interesting. So that's our avenue. Definitely, definitely. Awesome. Hey, it is Saturday. So thank you very much for your time um, recording this, Adam. I really appreciate it. Uh, all the best for the busy time you've got ahead and um, hopefully you get inundated with more calls. <laughs> okay, great. Hey, thanks, Matthew. <laughs> Cheers, Adam. Adam Taylor there from Adam Taylor Architecture, all the way from Mount Monganui. It's not that far away, really. Mount Monganui in Tauranga. And if you're anywhere near the Bay of Plenty, then definitely uh, get in touch with Adam. Um, but he also is doing work around the country as well, and you can have a look at his portfolio. I'll put the links to that on the show notes for 139. This is episode 139. Just go to homestylegreen.com forward slash 139 and you'll get all the information about Adam and uh, his practice there and uh, also don't forget to check out ProClimber and also our wonderful sponsor for this month Fantech if you are wanting a high performance home then you need to get it airtight and you need to talk to um, ProClimber about that and once you've got it airtight you need some good ventilation and there is good ventilation there's not so good ventilation so make sure you get the right stuff talk to Fantech and there are plenty of links to them on the Homestyle Green website. I'm Matthew Cutley-Welsh thank you very much for tuning in if you did enjoy this episode and others like it then head on over to iTunes as well I'd love to get your review and rating over there and uh, I'll see you next week. So until then, go make a better place to live.